Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week we were talking to Jay Axer. Jay currently works as an in-house artist for Blizzard Entertainment in the Hearthstone department. This is an enviable position for any illustrator, but Jay remains humble and exceptionally generous with his time and his knowledge. We talked a lot about the career choices he has made, but the most poignant moments are when Jay is talking about the things he has done to protect his happiness and his sense of fulfillment. If you're an artist listening to this, I don't have to tell you how hard the life of an artist is, but it's worth listening to Jay's story to hear how close you can get to catastrophe before you see the light. His story is one of warning, but also holds the promise of great reward. Our conversation ranges from his experience in extremely toxic work environments, how he got out, and how he recovered. We also talk a lot about why you might turn down what you thought would be your dream job because you just couldn't deny there was something you wanted to do for yourself that was more important than the title of the job you had. I think the single greatest takeaway from our entire talk is how important it is to be true to what you love. You might think that's an old cliche, but in an age when we are constantly losing sight of what we want for the sake of likes on Instagram, I'm not sure we can hear this story too many times. So let's listen. Here's the interview. Jay. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you having me. Well, let's jump right into it, man. Um, give us a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, how did you get stung by the art bug and taken over by the zombie parasite that it infected you with? Uh, that was, uh, well, when I, when I was a kid, I didn't like just start drawing when I was super little. Um, I liked art and I liked games and I wanted to make games. And eventually uh, I had some friends who introduced me to some anime and, and Japanese comic books before that stuff was really coming over to America. And I was like, well, this is, this is way more interesting than the Marvel stuff I was reading at the time because it was different. And I really kind of liked that. And so I started like doodling that while I was at the butt end of high school and that was kind of like where I started. I was like, oh, this is actually fun. And I started doing that and then was talking to people online and they were having fun drawing. And then people got like they wanted artwork from me and a lot of them wanted Sonic art. So I got into the Sonic community, which people love to make fun of, but actually was a really good start for a lot of very prominent artists that are in the industry today. Um, and uh, from there, I was gonna work job-wise as like middle management in grocery stores. And I was fine with that, but eventually I moved too much so I couldn't really get hired because they're like, oh, why do you keep hopping around? We're not gonna hire you. And so I took advertising work. So I was doing logos and just general advertising graphics. 
And eventually that's how I made money, which switched over to illustration and conceptual commissions. And then from there went into a full freelance career because I didn't want to work at grocery stores after that. Um, you are currently working for Blizzard, but you have been, you've been doing this for a while. And so there was like a kind of like a long path to that. Um, you started out, was you started out in a studio, like one of your, your first official jobs was studio work. Uh, yeah. So I was doing contract work for like tabletop games and stuff like that. And when I was just about to get hired as a contract, um, like a long-term contract for one of those companies, I was invited to join a company called Red Five Studios, which was started by a bunch of uh, ex-Blizzard guys, big names, people who had worked on World of Warcraft and whatnot. And that kind of fell through, but I wanted to work in a studio because I was exhausted from doing a bunch of years of freelance at that point. And so I still kind of pursued it. They apparently had a falling out within their own company, but still recovered and then invited me again. And I went in to work there. They were a smaller studio, but they were still a AAA studio. So like millions of dollars injected into a project. Uh, lots of big names from the industry. People who had worked on a whole bunch of games I'd grown up on. And so I was really excited. I was like, oh, well, maybe this will be my my entry into the industry. And it, and it was, but it just wasn't what I was expecting it to be at the time. Okay. So I'm sorry. So you did freelance before that studio job. Yeah. Was freelance, I did. Was, so was freelance your your first means of income when you were doing mm -hmm. art for game development. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So how did, but how none did of those start? projects shipped. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, but I'm curious to know like how you um, generated momentum for freelance work without having kind of like a, a, a prior experience or the prior networking that you typically goes into finding freelance work. So when I, when I started learning to draw, it was about 97. So long time ago, but I'm not the youngest person. So at that point, you know, I'm in my teens already. So I'm getting a late start for art. So I was, I had this like fire. I'm like, well, if I really like this, I'm going to, I'm going to have to catch up to all my buddies who've been drawing since they were toddlers or whatever. And, uh, what happened then was I, I got into doing commission work and I just started generating so many commissions for different people in different kind of walks of life that it caught wind of different people that were in the industries like comic industries and what have you. So I ended up hooking up with, because of the Sonic work, uh, the Sonic comic through Archie comics at the time, which had a, version of prominence for what it was. It, it wasn't necessarily great, but a lot of people liked it. And so I was learning to draw while working on that comic book, but that opened up opportunities for working at DC and working at Marvel. And that's kind of how the career kind of went. It went in almost fast forward for me because I kept landing in the right spot at the right time. So art back in like the early 2000s isn't anything what art is like now in that if you were an artist online, just by being an artist online, you were likely to get noticed in some way or fashion. Whereas now, if you're an artist online, there's so many 
you are likely to never be noticed. Um, it's it's very difficult now in a way that it honestly wasn't back then. It's not that we didn't have to work hard. It's just if you worked really hard, you were very likely to get noticed by somebody for that work. Whereas now you could work your your arms off and and there's still a possibility it just falls into the static. So that basically translated into work opportunities because people were seeing that work. I worked for the comics. I ended up turning down the Marvel and DC jobs because I realized I didn't want to do comics for a living, which I thought would ruin my career forever. I was really scared at that point in time. But I realized I wanted to do illustration. I wanted to do concept work. I wanted to make games. I didn't want to make panel stories for the rest of my life. And I felt really guilty. Like I was offered a prominent book at the time, which was a Spider-Man book. And that's, that could make a career. And I felt really guilty. I'm like, if I take this, I'm taking the job away from somebody who might want this as their career. And I'm like, I know I don't. So I feel like a jerk, but it's still a good opportunity. I thought I, I thought I made the bad decision, but that ended up opening opportunities to work with tabletop companies and somebody who was making their own game that ended up getting me on that path towards concept work to get a portfolio that worked for applying to concept places. I applied to Blizzard a year before I worked at Red 5. I never heard back. I wasn't ready. I didn't know it. But at the time, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go to Blizzard. I'm going to tear it up. Um, I wanted to work at Valve. I did not apply at Valve because I knew I didn't have what it took. And then I was picked up by Red 5. So that's kind of that's the weird roller coaster that led to an actual studio job. There's so many things in there that is blowing my mind. The late '90s, early 2000s. That's like, like, it's like the covered wagon era of the internet. <laughs> yes, I'm kind of amazed that you were. Uh, anytime I hear about early adopters of the internet, um, I'm so always so impressed because I was like, "What's an email?" You know, I'm like, I was so behind the curve on all of that, and the front. So from you said that, and that you started kind of learning, I assume, kind of teaching yourself how to draw in like the late 90s? Yeah, so um, I just, what were your just resources for, for fun. That? Sorry, My resources? Yeah. Uh, just looking at comics and replicating what I saw, basically. Um, originally, I just wanted to make, I had, I grew up in a poor family. I didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I couldn't go out and buy a bunch of merchandise. And I was looking at comic books that there wasn't merchandise for in America because the whole anime and manga movement to America hadn't happened yet. Sailor Moon wasn't on TV in America yet, et cetera. So and nobody knew what Dragon Ball was, but I had my old Dragon Ball books and I'm like, man, I'd love to have a poster of this. What if I just copied this, but made it really big. So I had really wonky looking <laughs> Dragon Ball characters on my walls that didn't look very good, but I was proud of it. Um, and I put them next to my Mega Man characters that looked a little less wonky because I could understand those shapes better. And I, I, it was just really repetition. Um, again, the landscape wasn't really what it's like now. So learning back then was a lot more of trying to find other artists, asking them how they did stuff, and most likely having them say, well, I'm not going to share that information with you because if you know how I do something, it only benefits you. So I'll keep my wizard secrets to myself. And, and it created a kind of depending on who you were talking to or what community you're in, a bit of hostility. Um, and I ended up running into that hostility a lot. So I kind of sheltered myself into just what I wanted to do and doing it my way, which meant I also had to learn just by figuring stuff out. So I would look at artwork, reverse engineer it, be like, well, how did this get this way and how to do that? 
So I, I didn't really use tutorials for things. I just opened up art programs and were like, I'll figure out what they do. And I'll, I'll see if I can, uh, can figure out how this works. And it was a lot of slow learning and a lot of frustration and a lot of anger <laughs> and, uh, a lot of running into gatekeeping people who didn't want to share their methods and didn't want people in the industry because then there's competition for them. Whereas now I think it's a lot more inviting. So my resources were very limited. There weren't YouTube videos, there weren't Twitch art channels, there weren't, weren't all of that. But that's why it excites me so much now is because now those resources are there and that's why I love sharing what I know and what I do and other people that I know love doing the same because we just didn't grow up with that. So, how how long a span of time was it from like when you're doing this like hard burn trying to get your skills to being offered a gig at DC because that's or what or Marvel which one you said it was a Spider-Man book so uh, like I did Spider-Man through Marvel and a Daredevil and a Batman thing through DC but the Batman was one of those like weird offshoot Batman ideas where you know it's probably not going to get greenlit so that wasn't really a real offer um so I started drawing about um 96 ish that's when I started like going like I'm going to make stupid characters and rip off anime characters and do a whole bunch of sonic art and and uh, then I was working at Archie at about 2000 or so, and then about two years into that. So, so it's about, about six years or so from when I started drawing to, to being offered actual real comic work, which was scary to me because I'm literally just learning how to draw still. And the pace then too was slower because again, you have less resources, you have less people. So you're not, you aren't being bombarded by art everywhere you go outside of media. So you're, you're actually kind of developing a little slower, but for me that worked because I was just enjoying myself. So about six years. And then I figured I threw my career away after six years by saying no to those comics, which was scary. That's fucking fast. That's like incredible. I can, I can understand how you would think that, especially, you know, as like a much younger person and getting like such a great opportunity and you're like, Oh, this is, that's, that'll follow me and haunt me. But I'm, I'm sure looking back, you're like, well, that's just proof of how great it's going to be <laughs> after that. Uh, retro. When I look, when I look back on it all, I just, I just remember feeling really scared. I'll be honest. I like, I look back at it and I'm just like, I remember exactly how I felt the moment I, I was on the phone with with these editors going, yeah, I'm going to pass. And they're kind of like, excuse me? And I'm like, oh, no. But there's no going back now. Um, I mean, also, freelance after that was just difficult, too. Learning how to do a whole bunch of art while doing it for money is, is scary to me um, because I've always had this idea that if I'm going to offer a service to somebody, I want to make sure they're getting what they paid for. And granted, commissions did not pay back then what they pay now. Um, you could do a character illustration painting with a nice painted background now. You could get like 800 plus dollars. You could get over 1,000. Back then, if you were asking for 150, like there'd be riots in the virtual streets. You know, people would take it to you and you know, put your name on forums and be like, don't work for this guy. He's greedy. And so I was working very hard and making very little money and trying to catch up to all the artists I knew who had been drawing their whole lives at that point. 
and it was a very stressful, like under fire kind of time for me. And that's really what I remember the most. Um, so getting that good that fast, do you think that there's anything particular about your method of study or your method of practice that lends itself to learning so fast? Or do you just have a mind that has the knack for, uh, and, and I'm not trying to tread into like, well, you're just talented, but, um, also understanding that there are different kinds of minds, you know, and there are people that maybe conceptualize and visualize faster or more readily. Like, do you have a sense for kind of what your process is? Um, well, I know that, that as far as my mind goes, I have a, a pretty technical mind. Uh, which has caused a lot of problems, but it means that I can look at something and look at another thing and immediately see a lot of the issues and incongruencies and, and what have you. Um, sometimes that would hold me back from making really cool stylized stuff. That's why I push into that direction now. Um, but as far as why I was learning that fast was I was just putting a lot of time into it, honestly. Um, I never felt that I was really particularly talented. Like I didn't feel like I was starting in a good spot, but I really was used to working really hard. Cause I, I like, I'd been working a job since I was uh, 13 under the table till I got a job license when I was 15, I was um, working through middle school into high school. And in summers I was working multiple jobs. So I'm like, I'm no stranger to just working really hard. And I'm like, well, I'll just do that with art too. I'll, constantly be doing it. And if it sucks, eventually maybe it won't suck because I'll do so much of it. I'll just get familiar with it. And that was really the, the trick. Um, and it led me to a weird spot where I felt really bad if I like copied something, like how I started copying out of manga and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I don't want to learn to replicate what I'm seeing. I want to learn to make something. If I just have a paper in front of me, I can just make the thing I want to make. So I just started focusing on learning that way of trying to make the thing, sucking at it, then getting reference to look at what it looks like, looking at the differences, putting the reference away, and then fixing it from memory. And that started to learn and create a visual library for that. And that's still how I work today. And over the years, I just got better at being really fast and really able to just kind of knock this stuff out. And that increased styles and that increased presentation and i took that approach to painting and 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 character concepts and creation and and forward so i really think it was just a whole lot of work and a whole lot of like forced practice um i never did studies i don't do studies um i never do warm-ups i i don't do warm-ups um that ends up for me being like energy that wastes away my ability to care about what i'm doing but I know a lot of people and work with a lot of people that do both those things. And it's, it's the best thing they could do for me. I just sit down and I go, I want to draw the thing. I'm going to draw the thing. And if I suck at it, okay, I'm going to try it again. Um, but if I do like an hour of studies and then I go to do work, my, I, my mind's already exhausted from doing the studies and now I don't have any energy to put in the work. Um, and that way that I worked when I was learning is the way that I work today, a whole bunch of years later. We have a question in chat from Sun asking how much time were you putting in for, like per day, uh, two hours a day for like an entire year or, you know, cause a lot can mean different things to different people. Uh, when I was learning to draw, like how much time I was drawing, uh, I was trying 
almost all the time when I wasn't working or sleeping or like out partying with friends. So it was variable, but it was a, a crazy amount of time. So if like, if I was going to school, I'm drawing during school because I'm bored during school. Um, my, my studies were fine. I actually did well in school, but I just was bored during class. So I'd just be drawing through half the day. Um, I would draw through lunch a lot of the times. Um, and then I would go home. I'd avoid doing my homework as much as possible. I'd draw then um, until work because I'd be working late. Then I couldn't draw at work, but I'd come home and I'd sacrifice sleep for more drawing because I was really enjoying myself. And I think the key to learning for me was drawing things you enjoy so that you want to do them instead of forcing yourself to constantly draw the things you don't want to draw so that you get exhausted and you realize how much work you're doing. Um, that way, if there was something I wanted to learn that I didn't find interest in, I'd sprinkle it in somewhere instead of just go like, this week I'm working on horses. I don't like drawing horses. I'm not going to spend a week drawing horses, no matter how much I need to learn how to draw a horse. But if I spend a little bit now and then or put some horses in the background of a really cool thing I want to draw, then I'm learning horses. So it was, it was a lot of hours, but it varied. Um, I also, you know, would give myself breaks once in a while, though. Like if I had a weekend and I'm like, man, I want to just relax on Saturday. I wasn't like, well, I got to draw today. I have to draw. I just was really in the zone because I, I was really interested in something. And, and outside of video games, I hadn't been interested in anything to that level before. So. So then the amount of time that you're putting in, you're at, at some point you find your way into getting commissions. This is, mm. this is even before you get offered a job doing comic books. Like you're, you're Correct. starting to find commission. Where are you finding commissions in the late nineties and early 2000s? <laughs> chat rooms, uh, HTML based chat rooms, be seen chats and stuff like that. Um, anime sites that when anime started to come over eventually were the same kind of thing. But originally, oddly enough, it was Sonic chat rooms. Uh, where everybody had their little Sonic characters and a lot of those people were interested in more than just Sonic. So they'd be like, oh, I also like this show or I like this comic and I want to see Spider-Man hanging out with G.I. Joe or whatever. And you'd just be like, well, I can draw that. And you'd be like, what do you want to spend? Okay, cool. And I would just start doing that. I think I did um, something like 400 different Sonic characters uh, just from that one chat room over the course of however long just because everybody would come in and they'd be like well i've got to have a character everybody else has a character and uh and like i said it's the stuff that people make fun of now but i'm like man they like so much artwork was done and so much was learned just by drawing sonic of all things back then um and honestly i just liked the games and then i was like oh well people are doing art i want to be part of a community because when um when anime started to come over there was a place um, that was, uh, gosh, was it Anime HQ or no, it was Anime something. Um, and it was a community site for people to do art and come together. And it was supposed to be collaborative. Like someone would do a panel of a comic and then you'd be like, now I'm doing my panel and so on. And you'd tell a story that way. And it was a way to cultivate artists and learn how to do work. Um, I got run off of that site because I wasn't good enough. Um, and a buddy of mine was run off that site as well because he wasn't good enough. So I just went back to the Sonic places where everybody was good enough because they weren't really elitist at that point. They were just like, we'll take whoever. And uh, I learned way more there than I would have learned at that site. And uh, some people from the anime site are prominent in careers now. 
and I know who they are and they don't remember me from then. So you get those kind of awkward interactions where they're like, oh, dude, your, your stuff's so cool. And I'm like, I remember you. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go here, but I'm never going to let it go here. I was just going to ask, do you ever follow up on that conversation? Yeah, it's not worth it. Um, yeah. It's not worth it. And if anything, they'd probably be like, wow, you're a crazy person for like remembering that. I'm like, well, to me, it was very substantial. I was interested in a thing and I just earnestly wanted to get better at it and be around a community that cared about it. And what I encountered instead was elitist people who only wanted to be the coolest person in the room. And I'm like, well, that's not cool. And uh, that kind of shaped, those kind of experiences shaped how I work today as well um, in the workplace, communicating with people who are starting out in art, um, explaining technique and stuff like that. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who are like, well, now that I've made it, I don't need to talk to the lowly, you know, startup people. I can only talk with like art celebrities. And I'm like, no, I'll always talk with everybody because you were that person and you still kind of are, you know? Um, so yeah, Sonic chat rooms, small places. That's fascinating. Um, I don't. There's so many tangents that I want, <laughs> I want to go <laughs> on and on that, but I want to get back to sort of like the career path um, and sort of like self-employment path that you were doing up until getting to uh, Red Five. Was there, uh, you know, like a, a, a distinct point where you're just like, oh, I don't want to do this freelance thing anymore. Like, I really want like the steady gig steady yeah, paycheck. there was definitely um i was getting burnt out by commissions because i was doing commissions constantly um the goal was do commissions work freelance so i have time to do what i want to do and i can make my own schedule and i can all that stuff and what it became is get less sleep do commissions all day every day seven days a week don't have time for your own stuff, start learning less because everyone wants the same kind of commission. So you're just drawing the same thing over and over again because everybody's like, hey, I like that. I want that, but for me. And you're like, cool, I'm glad you like it and you do it. And then I just started to get burnt out. I started to get physically tired and mentally tired. And I was like, every day I'm going from this commission to this one, to this project, to this commission, and then trying to balance that with contract work for companies. And I want to just focus on something. So I was like a studio. I still want to work in games. That was I was designing games before I was ever doing art for games. I'm like, that's the goal. I want to work with a company making a game and focus and then have a point where my day ends and I'm off work. And then that's when I'll do my own work. And that's why I applied to Blizzard originally in 2009 and, and why I accepted the job at Red5 in 2000, just before 2010. Um, we had a question. We have two questions, but once we'll save for later. Um, how many commissions were you doing before you got burned out? Like uh, they did commissions for a year and still felt burned out from that year. Uh, how many were I doing? Was I doing per year? Yeah, like how many commissions before you started getting burned out? Uh, <laughs> I'm having a thousand yard stares. I'm I'm thinking about it. I I progressively each year was doing more and more. I did um 10 years of commissions before i moved out of it technically i did 14 years of freelance commissions overall in my career um with a sprinkling of like extras beyond that that i wouldn't count and each year it progressed more and more um in any given week i had to do 
quite a lot. I can't really think of an exact number offhand because it's been a while. But like I said, they were paying a lot less. So in order to pay my bills and pay my rent and pay for car or whatever I needed and food because I had to eat, I had to do a lot. So it was like, oh, you know, this week I've got one full character, a two full character, a painting of a character in a big scene, and then one that's a whole bunch of outfit designs because people liked how I put excessive detail and outfits and stuff like that and then i've got to ink these ones from last week to make sure that they're done this week and then i've got to do like this contract which is usually a painting for a tabletop game or something and i would just kind of i'd load up my week and be like well i can do a few of these in a day or at least get them half done in one day and finish them the next day and i was just bouncing back and forth like that but each year it felt like there was more and more each year so even as i um was able to increase pricing, which uh, I think on my final year, like the most I got for commissions was 500 or $600 for like a huge painting with a whole bunch of characters in it, where now it's, it'd be like, you know, that's, that's the moment you tell someone, look, we need to sit down and talk. You're not charging enough, buddy. But back then there was, that was high for, for what people were charging. That was, and keep in mind too, there was a lot more segregation between genres of art than there is now. If you were doing like high art or concept art you weren't messing with the anime people who weren't messing with the furries who weren't messing with the video game fan artists and now there's a whole bunch of crossover so it's like oh you aren't doing fine art though so who cares that you're doing a really good painting of these characters and stuff i'm not going to pay fine art prices like this concept artist over here doing the pointy mountains you know and, and you're like i liked all of that so i kind of viewed it as equal but people paying money did not. And so I was stuck in this cycle of constantly increasing my work. And even as I increased prices, you know, my bills and everything are going up. And I just was like, I can't live this way. It's not sustainable. I wanted to work for Wizards of the Coast for Magic the Gathering. I never applied because I knew I wasn't good enough at the time. And then I was like, you know what? No, I just want to go straight in the studio. So I can't give you an exact number, but I can say it was a lot. It was too many. Nobody should really have to work that hard to make a living, I feel, but it happens. Just your weekly list um, made gave me arthritis. Just listening <laughs> to you like describe it is insane. Um, who says that youth is wasted on the young, man? You took fucking full advantage of You'd live like six lifetimes, it sounds like. Um, there's, there's more that we want to talk about in regards to like, price and pricing and stuff later on that's like such a valuable con conversation to have but i do just want to highlight one thing that you mentioned about 500 dollars like back then you know like that being high um it, it's interesting because like in, in a lot of circles that would be high now like people still mm -hmm. don't want to pay that in a lot of places mm -hmm. um and and the the highlight that i want to make is like the amount of work that you're going to do to pay your bills and feed yourself is crazy if you're yeah. not charging enough. But there's there, there's more to say about what enough is and like how to know what that is. But we can we can come back to that unless you had another thing on that. Oh, no, we'll, we'll approach it when you come back to it. It's no problem. So that um, that gig at Red 5, um, I've heard you talk a little bit about it before. Um, and I don't know to what degree you feel comfortable talking <laughs> talking about it now, um, because it's my impression is that you really liked it, and then you really didn't. Can you yeah describe was, that a little bit? 
it was a very interesting job. And I will say it was one of the most toxic places I've ever worked. And some of the worst industry experiences I've ever had that taught me some of the best lessons I've ever learned as far as working with studios, working with other people and protecting yourself. But it was also, it also taught me a lot about how I work and what to expect and, and, you know, the ups and downs of the industry. So that was my first AAA job back in, uh, I'm starting beginning of 2010 and I'm kind of like, you know, deer in the headlights, like, Oh, whoa, what's, Whoa, I've never been in the studio before. You know, I'm like, I'm trying to be respectful because I, I don't want to be like an egomaniac. Like, yeah, I made it. You know, I'm in a AAA studio. I'm working with people who worked on games. I grew I'm like, I'm like, whoa, I'm working with people who worked on games I grew up with. I guess I better kick it up a notch because there's some expectations here. Um, for the first time in a long while, I'm getting paid reasonably well. And uh, the expectation was I'm going to come in. I'm going to do a lot of concept design and illustration. And then I'm going to go home at the end of the day and have a good time and have money to maybe play some games or do whatever I want and then come in and work five days a week. What ended up happening was uh, a crazy amount of overtime um, arguments and real toxicity issues and ego issues amongst people in the studio. A project that was misdirected and ended up flopping when it came out um, and a real frustration to balance the amount of work you're doing with the amount of agency you have on the work that you're doing, respect that you're not getting from people versus what you're getting paid for what you're doing versus do I just run away from this and go back to freelance because this isn't what I thought it was. I had no idea what other industry jobs were at the time because I hadn't worked them and I didn't know people. I didn't have like a bunch of buddies at Blizzard. I didn't have a bunch of people at Riot. I didn't have people working at, you know, Gearbox or or even like AA studios, which there were less of at the time. Um, but I didn't know that that things could be better. So I was like, I guess this is how the industry is. Just people argue and people have huge egos and people hammer away at each other. Um, the concept team alone we're not getting along. Um, we didn't really respect each other. We didn't get along. Um, there was a lot of artist worship going on where there was a specific artist that everybody was like, this guy is the best guy. And if you're not doing what this guy does, then you're trash. So you better start pretending to be this guy. And it just, it slowly degraded the experience over the years I was there into me being a very, very angry and aggressive and depressed and miserable person. Um, it made me fall out of love with art almost completely. Um, I stopped doing anything outside of work. Um, and at work, I just started going, whatever, we'll just, I'll do this really good design and we'll ship it. And if you don't like it, then I'll change it. I don't care. You know what I mean? Cause there was no, um, they were working under the idea that if somebody does a good job, you shouldn't really tell them they're doing a good job because it'll give them an ego. So the result of that was nobody knew if they were doing a good job, but everybody thought that they were doing the best job. <laughs> so um, we were working under a flat structure, um, which can work for some companies. Uh, the most notorious that people talk about is Valve, but there's there's complexities to what a flat structure is within that. They took it literal and they're like, okay, so there's no leads, there's no seniors. So people who worked in the industry forever were being told the juniors are basically the same as you. Um, and the juniors were being told you're the same as these people who are industry veterans of 20 plus years, you know, good for you. So everybody suddenly started 
fighting for dominance in any conversation. And there was no one who could go, wait, I'm the decision maker. We need to go in this direction. Um, the project was brutal behind doors. I have some stories I could tell, but I have a lot more stories I won't tell um, because um, it's not appropriate. And, uh, and people have moved on. You know what I mean? And we don't want to open old wounds for stuff. And I don't want to start throwing names under, under buses and whatnot. But, um, but there was a lot of really great people who worked there and a lot of great work that did get done. It just was kind of wasted and thrown away because the project kept restarting what it, its definition was. But for me, I felt like I aged 20 years in four years. You know what I mean? Um, I quit that job and moved out of state. Uh, after about a little over four years. And then they had me work remote for about a year before I was then laid off again. Um, or, or I left, but I was laid off. Um, was laid off from a different job after that too. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay. And then the company kind of went under shortly after and they had a whole issue of not paying employees and stuff like that. But it was a big company with you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind the project. Um, huge prominent names from different projects were attached to it. Um, and some of the best talent I've worked with and some of the worst not talent that I've worked with were just angry people who had no business being in there. And a lot of them, I will say openly, are blacklisted from the industry now um, because of things that they did and the way that they worked and, and their inability to deliver on a cohesive project while working with other people because in the industry, everybody's like your portfolio is the thing, but your social skills matter too. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to respect, not pretend to respect people, but actually respect people and work with other people. And there was a huge mix of really great column A and really bad column B fighting with each other for years. Um, it, it ended up with a product that didn't quite work out. And um, I ended up with a pretty good portfolio. <laughs> so. Um, I left and I was very angry. And then over the course of two years, I learned to turn that anger and bitterness around into, well, let's just look at what I gained from this and forget about the anger and disappointment and go, well, I was given a huge opportunity and I turned it into better opportunities. And I met a lot of wonderful people and I learned a lot. Maybe it wasn't all good stuff, but I learned a lot and, and it's served me very well since then. It seems like a particularly heavy duty dose of um, conflicting interest and conflicting personalities. Was do you think there was something that contributed to that being such like a minefield, or was it just bad luck that this company attracted that kind of? Uh, they um, so originally the the original form of the company. Um, which has actually people who are over on Overwatch at Blizzard now. Um, some of the the heads of art, like Bill Petrus, who was originally on WoW, and Arnold Sang, who actually had been on a bunch of failed projects like APB and Firefall and then Project Titan, and then is now over on Overwatch, where finally this really talented guy finally attached to a project that went well, and I'm really happy for him. Um, they were there, but they left before I was hired in. I was like round two. Um, so it was a company that had broke down and a lot of the people who were there were people that stayed. And so some of those people that stayed were really big talents and really good people. And some of them stayed honestly, because I don't think they probably would have gotten a better opportunity. And so that remnant 
then built the rest of the company and everybody's in charge of hiring. So you start hiring in good people and then you start hiring in like buddies and maybe not good people. And a lot of people who are very clearly toxic were now grandfathered in contractually. And it, it just created a kind of a bad place because then everything was reactionary to what caused the implosion within the company before. Before people were segmented, um, concept was with concept 3D with 3D, you know, programs with programmers. And they were like, well, that caused them all to pass the buck and be angry at each other. So now when I got hired in, they're like, everyone's intermingled. There is no concept section. You're going to randomly change seats every two weeks, which that really doesn't make people feel comfortable where they're working because you never feel like you're in a permanent space that's yours. And you might be sitting next to the networking guy. You know, oh, this time I'm sitting next to a programmer who happens to hate art because they're like, art's always ruining my job or something. And then, and it just caused all these weird reactionary ways to run the company that I think hurt it. I'm no expert in running a company. So a lot of this is just my opinion or an explanation of what happened. I can't tell you exact whys for a lot of it without kind of overstepping my personal experience. But I can tell you that it wasn't working um, and it was a lot of like constant putting out fires and whatnot. I think it could have gone well if we had cleaned house of some of the more problematic people and laid down some ground rules and had a hierarchy. I think you, in a lot of times, you need someone who's in charge that's experienced that can listen to a team but go, there will be decisions that we make. There will be doors we will close while we're opening doors and this is the direction the project's going. Um, it never really had direction. And I think as far as hiring practices, it never really had a direction there either. Over the last uh, 10 years or so, my understanding has been the uh, game industry has been making an effort to clean itself up of outside of the, uh, the assholes, as you mentioned, the blacklisting <laughs> of the, pre, the, the people who fit that bill. Right. Um, I, I think that's a company-to-company -company thing. So um, I will not hide the fact that I think games journalism hurts more than it helps most of the time when it comes to the industry. Um, we can, you know, whistleblow on bad things, which is always a positive, but a majority of the news is usually this company as a whole is bad because of this thing that happened. And it's like, you're talking about a company that's got like 8,000 people in it. And you're like, this company is toxic because this one person did this thing. And you're like, what about the 7,999 other people who work there? What's going on? Um, I, won't, I won't talk for my current employer because I can't. But I will say that there are people who hate Blizzard and will actually give me personally crap going like, well, you're part of evil empire or whatever. And I'm like, dude, within our, I'm going somewhere with a story. <laughs> within our company, we are a team amongst other teams, amongst the company as a whole. And the culture between each team is vastly different. You might as well be at a different company. So then the company as a whole is vastly different from every other company. So when a company's working to clean up what they're doing, their version of cleaning up may be different from another company's cleaning up. I think an overt effort is definitely being made and I think transparency is is the way. But I think people have, uh, people being just the general idea of, you know, the, the gamer zeitgeist, I guess, um, it seemed to give off an impression that like companies are either bad or they're good and things have been cleansed of bad things or they're evil forever. And that's just not the case. I think things like Red 5 wouldn't be allowed to exist now, thankfully, because I think too many people would be like, dude, 
I'm on Twitter today and I'm going to tell you everything that happened today. And they're going to be like, what's that about? And then enough people with actual clout and reliable, you know, sources will go, yes, we are being punished every day. And this is terrible. And then things would either have to change or the company would have to close down. Um, but I think that, that there's a long way to go in the industry to clean out certain types of people or certain attitudes, because a lot of times to perpetuate that, all you need is a certain number of people to go like, yeah, that's my boy. And then everybody else to stay quiet about it. Um, because in the end, especially now, most people are just lucky to have a job um, in this industry or, or at all. And so it's, you're, you're weighing, do I help change the industry and clean this up? Or do I keep my employment? You know what I mean? And feed my family. And that's a scary decision to have to make. Um, luckily, I've been able to not have to make that. I can make a stand when I need to, and I can find a way to support myself outside of that. But I've known a lot of people who aren't in that position. I went on a tangent there, but hopefully that was relevant enough. Dude, tangents are uh, encouraged. Mm. Very much so. Um, you, you just said that you know there's a maybe an attitude of concern about getting another job and you know, some self-preservation and not wanting to rock the boat. And you, you say that um, in spite of the fact that there's like so many more, I mean, it seems like there's just like 10 times the number of studios that there were like 10 years ago and there's more all the time. It just seems like there's, more opportunity i'm this i'm speaking from an outsider though i'm not like contradicting what you're saying i'm just kind of curious about your perspective as an insider it seems like there's so many more opportunities than there ever has been oh i think there are um I, you're spot on but there's also more people than ever trying to get those opportunities so what you have is a lot of people going well i'm pretty replaceable because so i just go on art station there's like 30 other people who can do exactly what i do and then if they work for less and they have a better attitude than me and don't cause problems i'll be you know so you have to you really have to kind of know who you're working for and um not every place has loyalty to its workers and some places do um i'm i'm in a real lucky position now where i have a team comprised of very you know, well-informed and caring people. Um, but, you know, you switch companies, you never know what you're getting into. Um, I think opportunities are greater than ever by far. I mean, man, when I was a kid, I was like, I'm playing Mega Man and I want to, I want to make a Mega Man one day. This will be cool. And it's like, but you won't because those are the untouchable rock stars and you will never be those people at those companies. And now it's like, everything's transparent, you know, People who get the jobs are people like everybody else and people who run the places are people like everyone else. And it's, you know, what goes on in these studios and you know, what's, I think that right now, probably Nintendo is the most secretive company out of most just because they play things so close to the chest. But even there, Nintendo now versus what it used to be is way more open. Um, but the competition is, is huge. There are more artists, I think today than there were yesterday and the day before. And it's, it's, a surplus of artists. I mean, I don't think that there's too many, but there is a huge amount relative to positions for art. Um, luckily, a lot of people love art and want to pay for it. So the freelance area is a, a huge field of opportunity. But as far as like game studio jobs and stuff, 
I don't think they're going to dry up. And I think more and more studios are going to open, especially as indie starts to go into the like more like double A space and not just indie space. Like the blurred lines between like here's AAA and here's indie, you can't really have that argument as hard anymore as you've got like Supergiant was indie. What are they now? You know what I mean? They've created a lot of huge games. They got a lot of funding. They're one of the bigger names in the industry. They're not indie anymore, but they act like indie, but they're kind of like double A, but they create games that are almost AAA. And so, you know, it's it's creating these weird spaces, but in those spaces, there's more jobs. But in those job searches, there's millions of more artists now. And and like I said, when we begin, how, how do you break through that static and become the artist that is noticed to do that work? And an interesting side effect of that is you get told if you want to work in this industry, you've got to stand out. And then in order to stand out on social media, you've got to not stand out. You've got to replicate the thing that everyone else is doing. So you get a whole bunch of echo chamber artists who are very talented, but they're all talented at doing the exact same thing. I could line up 10 pictures and they would look like the same person drew them. And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. But also you're like, wait a minute. So how do I choose one person over another for this job? And that causes people to, to have this it's, it's a really complex complex uh, conversation, but it basically just ends up that nobody knows what to do day in, day out to really get caught up. And then you'll have people who have a very unique style telling you do fan art and don't be unique because that's how you stand out. And then they only got hired because they didn't do that. And then it's just, I think we're in a weird time where advice, it gets sold as fact, but it's really just opinion. Um, and it's not marketable to say that it's an opinion. And I've just opened up five different conversations. So I'm going to stop talking for a moment. <laughs> no, you've, you've perfectly anticipated what was going to be my next question, um, which is, you know, how, well, let me rephrase it as I'm asking it rather than asking, how do you stand out? <laughs> uh, if somebody was asking you that question, you know, like a sort of like a newcomer or somebody that was trying to break into this industry, what would you say to them and, and what would you advise them in terms of perhaps a different way to think about it rather than just like there's a magic bullet that I can fire that will make me stand out? Um, it's, it's advice I give a lot that unfortunately doesn't apply to everybody uh, because realistically, any advice you give won't apply to everybody. You, you could be like, you just don't have this opportunity or you whatever. But the most general thing I can say that worked best for me and some of the most successful people I know is to find the thing that you really enjoy doing, find the thing you really like, do that, do it well. And every time somebody tells you to do it like somebody else does it, just ignore them and do it the way you were doing it and commit to your idea and your vision, even if everybody's not responding to it and doesn't like it, because there's a higher chance that when you get really damn good at that, people are going to be like, that's the that thing person. And they'll, they'll know you for that. And you'll be doing the thing that you love, which means you're going to put your most heavy energy into it. And then hopefully it becomes a marketable thing. This doesn't count for certain types of subjects. Obviously it doesn't count for, for certain circumstances, but that's what I did. And that's what some of the most successful people I know did. And that's what Arnold did even, um, who's now, you know, over on Overwatch. And the reason Overwatch looks more anime than World of Warcraft is because of his art style and his inception where he grew up with street fighter and was like, I love Capcom art, but I want to do my version of it. You know, and I like sci-fi, but I'm going to do my version of it. And he evolved it, stuck to it. People didn't respond to it. Then they did. 
and then he started getting hired because he wasn't the guy who does Star Wars tech all day. Like, you know, he was Arnold who does Arnold style of art. And now everybody replicates his work everywhere you go. Um, it, it, I don't think there's a perfect answer, which sounds like a cop-out, but um, really, I think if you commit to what you believe in and what you want to do artistically, you'll have that expression that hopefully will resonate with people. Um, you can still stand out by doing really phenomenal fan art in the same style that someone else does. You just do it better than them. It will work, um, and there's nothing wrong with it. I really think that, in, and if that's what you want to do and you stick to it, then do it. Um, but I've noticed a really good way to not stand out is to do what everyone's told you to do, become a miserable artist who doesn't enjoy what you do. You can't draw anything until you ask everyone what they want to see. And then 20 years later, you look back and go, I never really, I never really spent this time doing what I did. I just did what everyone else wanted. And now I have a job that's something I don't enjoy. I run into this when people show me portfolios. Um, if I'm reviewing those or I've done discussions, I've actually run into this on hirings too, when I've hired people where someone will show a portfolio and they'll be like, oh yeah, they're excited about these ones. And they're like, oh yeah, I, I like this, but that's not really what I want to do. And I'm like, well, why is it in your portfolio if it isn't what you want to do? Because obviously a portfolio shows what someone actively can do, but also what they're looking for for work. And they're like, well, I was told by somebody this was really solid and I should include it because it'll get me hired. And I'm like, yeah, it'll get you hired to do this thing you don't want to do. Do you want to do this for five years? And they're like, no. I'm like, then think about that. It, it sounds simple. It's not. Like when we talk about it now, it's like, oh, yeah, obviously. But it's I know it's more complex than that. But my approach is is very much especially because of my experience having fallen out of love with art and then back in love with it again that doing what you love and doing it how you love to do it has much more long-term value than just trending on twitter for a day um but the caveat of course is if you trend on twitter for a day you may finally get that audience that then sees the thing that you love so <laughs> I mean, it might be that what you love doing is all the stuff that everybody else loves, and that's okay yeah. too. It's like the, you, you hit know, the jackpot then, right? <laughs> because you're going to have an instant audience, and you're going to have people loving everything you do, and that's that's perfect, and it's just as valid and, and good as anything else. Maybe that's the distinction for the question that I was then going to ask, which is that another piece of advice that you'll often encounter is being able to uh, imitate a variety of styles and like, and show that in your portfolio. Um, does that chime for you at all? Or, or what is your, what's your take on this idea that, you know, like, well, on the one hand, you know, show the thing in your portfolio that you want to do. And then on the other hand, also show that you can, uh, impersonate a variety of styles? Uh, I think it depends with the intention of what the artist is for the type of job they want to do. Uh, a good example of that is if you want to work on World of Warcraft. Maybe you don't do World of Warcraft work all the time, but you're like, I love the game and I actually want to do that kind of work. If you're going to apply to World of Warcraft and you're drawing Yu Yu Hakusho all day, um, they're not going to hire, for people who don't know, that's an anime. Um, you're going you're gonna to basically not be doing World of Warcraft style and they're going to be like, well, you can't do our style. Why are you trying to work on our game? So the, the most obvious low-hanging fruit answer is you, you want to get that in there to show that you can adopt to a style of a new project if you 
if you need to, if you want to, or you're applying to a project that has a style outside your normal art area. So you're showing the broad range. Um, I think I think it's perfectly fine and it's perfectly great. And I've hired people based off of their ability to do that. But if it's going to make you miserable to the where point, like you're going to go home and complain on Twitter about how you hate your job, maybe reconsider doing that. But otherwise, I think to me, and, and I'm biased because I like to do a lot of different styles and I like to do a lot of different subjects. I think that range in artistic ability only benefits you because it makes you more marketable for a job and it makes you more able as an artist. So if you can show that in your portfolio and it falls within the range of I'm comfortable doing something like this, always, I would say always, unless unless you're, you're applying to World of Warcraft specifically, then just fill your thing with World of Warcraft looking stuff because that'll get you hired. So if you're if you like doing a lot of things, it's okay to have a lot of things in your portfolio, but also have a portfolio just for the targeted audience for a specific yeah. gig. You can have multiple portfolios. Um, that gets tossed around a lot, but maybe not enough. Um, usually, people use ArtStation for a portfolio, so let's use that as an example. You can make different accounts on ArtStation for your different, you know, broad spectrum portfolio. I want to work on World of Warcraft specifically at Blizzard Portfolio. I want to work on Hearthstone specifically at Blizzard Portfolio. I want to do only splash art for Riot Portfolio, and I want to work in a in a cutesy indie game portfolio. And they can all be your portfolio, and you show the correct portfolio to the correct application. Um, and that's totally fine. And nobody will ever go, oh, I found you had a different one, though. What's that about? Like, you're just showing the relevant work to the, the relevant people. And uh, I think that's a very healthy way to do it. And there's no harm, no foul in, in you know, firing on all cylinders in different locations like that. There's an interesting question in the chat. Um, what level of style innovation is accepted in these kinds of industries? You have to follow, follow the style, but surely the style will become bland and outdated if it's never innovated. And I would just tag on one idea to that, which is what drives those innovations? Like as things do change and progress and evolve, what's the motivating force behind that typically? If you figure that out completely, you'll be a multimillionaire within a year. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, Absolutely. But there is a bit of information I can contribute to that conversation, which is, yes, um, style innovation will always get bland. Um, Breath of the Wild comes out, for example, and people like how it looks. And now we have a whole bunch of games emulating it. And I guarantee you in two years, people are going to be sick of it. They'll see Breath of the Wild 2 and they'll be like, yeah, but I'm already tired of this the games that look like this. Whereas when it came out, people were like, oh, wow, low contrast, cell shaded, you know, very colorful, interesting take on Zelda. OK, cool. Um, take Riot's splash art, for example, where if people are looking at it as the pinnacle of art still, I guarantee you people are going to be sick of it in five years. It's going to happen because you're seeing it everywhere. It doesn't mean it's not good. It's freaking awesome. But people are going to be like, oh, well, of course you're doing the Riot, you know, whatever. And then they'll have to innovate. So I think the innovation is born from that stagnation, but the direction it's going to go, you can't really predict it. Um, so innovating is good but it's still guesswork. You know what I mean? It's kind of like going to the doctor. You've got symptoms and the doctor is going to look at the symptoms and go, okay, well, I've got a list of possible directions. We can go for the cure, but they never know for certain. Um, and that's, that's really what you're doing. You're trying to dissect the situation. You're looking at the arena as a whole, and you're either trying to catch onto the wave that's going right now. Um, a, a example of that would be poor Cliffy B who, 
you know, went off and made his own studio and decided I'm going to make a battle Royale, but it was at the butt end of battle Royales and right after Fortnite. So his studio fails. And then he goes, I'm never going to make games again. Or you write it at the right time and you're Fortnite and you go, Oh, well, we had a regular game, but let's jump on the battle, you know, Royale thing. And then you become the number one game, you know, in the world. Um, so you can ride those or you can then go, well, let's look at what might be after this battle royale style. What art wise am I going to do to fill that space? And you just look at where the holes might be and go, do I do I want to fill that or do I want to bring something back in a fresh new way? You know, you, there's all these directions and I think it's born from that. But I think the key aspect is sensing the stagnation prior to the stagnation manifesting. If you can tell something is going to get old before anybody's seeing it get old, you're ahead of the game and you've got time to create the next big thing, possibly. Um, but also, I think recognizing that style innovation isn't always creating something absolutely new. Sometimes it's just creating your vision for a thing that exists um, or reinventing and renewing something that was old. Cuphead took back the 1930s rubber hose style um, and called back to a whole bunch of aspects of that from like the actual using a, a photographed model, you know, turning around to hand drawing animation and stuff. And for a lot of people that was innovative because it was new because they didn't grow up with rubber hose animation. They grew up with modern animation. So there's a lot of spaces to go where, where that's defined, I think comes down to what you're passionate about, because I think innovation is rarely successful when it's created by someone who's just crunching the numbers and not actually caring about what they're doing. Um, you can probably do it. I'm not capable of doing it because I got to be honest with myself. If I don't really care, I'm not going to really put that much into it. Um, but, you know, um, a good example of what worked would be like you take of style evolution is you take World of Warcraft um, and that's a style people are familiar with. But then you look at Hearthstone and Hearthstone's like literally World of Warcraft style, just what if it was more cartoony and even more colorful and we took fun spins on it. And when we were dark with it, we were still like fun dark with it. It's the same thing, but it's evolved. So it feels different where people go, that's wow style and that's Hearthstone style, but as a whole, they're kind of the same. So that's innovation within an existing space. And that's just as valid and people will respond to it. If it's something new, sadly, no matter how good something is, people will get sick of it. And because of the internet, people will see people saying they're sick of it and they'll convince themselves they're sick of it too. So now those waves of what's popular and what's not go by faster than ever. Um, that was a lot of talking, not, not much of an answer, but that's my rumination on it. I'm not an art, art history major, but my understanding is it, a lot of the uh, trends in history were reactions to previous things. So if the, the in thing was to do hyper realism, then you have people that do cubism or what yeah. have you. So just look at the polar opposite of whatever the current hot thing is, and maybe that will give you a heads up. Yeah. And, and sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, uh, I do a lot of furry art, which a lot of people who like are interested in industry, industry stuff are like, Oh, well, why do you do that? And it's like, cause I love it. <laughs> but, um, um, an example is that like simple things can be a big impact. So older guard furry art is basically just anthropomorphic characters. They've got, you know, animal faces, what have you. They're like, I'm going to draw a wolf. I'm going to draw a wolf with a really long snout. Cause that's what wolves have really popular, really great. Eventually I was like, I'm going to draw characters with more anime influence. They've got really short snouts. They look more like anime characters. They're more human influenced. People did not like that. 
They're like, this is awful. This isn't our thing. But now people love it because it people started to get like wanting that new thing. And then, you know, in a few years, they're going to hate it again because now it's like, well, now that's everywhere. I want the wolf, you know, face or I want, you know, robot wolves. And, and just no matter how much of a microcosm you're in, you'll see the same patterns. And so it's not always a polar opposite per se, but it's definitely an evolution or a change of some kind. You know, if everybody's like, I like people wearing leg warmers, leg warmers are cool. After a year of that, people are going to be like, well, everybody's wearing leg warmers. I'm going to be not wearing them. And they're like, whoa, that person's not wearing leg warmers. That's amazing. And it's literally just how it was before. In the uh, games industry, uh, my impression has been that a lot of this will sort of just like follow the changing of an art director. Like one of the tropes when it comes to you know, like Wizards of the Coast is like, well, if you get denied one time, uh, reapply in three months because there's probably a new art director. And maybe they'll 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 pick up on it and i i've i've seen that in well not that exactly you know but we were talking before we started recording about hearthstone and how the style is sort of like changed um you know and it do you do you find that there's which is it a chicken and egg thing like do they say hey we need to make a change here let's get a new art director or do they make a new art do they get a new art director that then says hey let's make some of these changes i think it's both um, it depends on the situation. Um, a lot of companies, uh, an art director will be really successful. And what you see happen in the industry is kind of the same as everything else. Somebody does something long enough and they go, I need to change. I need to do something new. I can't just work on this project for the next five years. I've already worked on it for five years. So that art director leaves, looks for greener pastures or the other side of the fence. And then you bring in a new art director and that art director is like, well, this isn't quite how I do it. Let's innovate on it or they bring them in for the reason, like you said, like they're like, we want to change. But a lot of the times it's just the natural progression of a project sensing its own repeated patterns and needing that change. And that is either you bring in the person, like you said, or the person leaves and gets replaced. Um, and that'll happen within artists and the own in, in your own team. That's actually why there's an interesting conversation that goes around about hiring senior artists and hiring junior artists. Um, Senior artists, generally, you're going to look for like 10 years experience, eight years experience. Juniors being like, this is my first job, or maybe like they've only been in the industry a year. They're pretty new. Um, and you don't necessarily want a team of all juniors and you don't want a team of all seniors because the seniors will be kind of more, I know how to do this and I know it doesn't work. So they'll experiment less, but the juniors will be like, I'm going to blue sky so much, we'll never get anything done. But when you bring these people together, you get a unique form of innovation that you don't get any other way because everybody's not just challenging each other, but putting each other in check in a very positive way. And, and you know, um, every once in a while, you know, you'll get seniors who feel like a junior because they just love what they do. But, you know, you'll get art directors that are the same way. And, and you'll get younger art directors or older art directors. And that can just the amount of, industry experience can completely change what they're willing to try. Um, and there's benefits to both, but it will be a catalyst for that, that kind of art change as well. Like little tiny things I've seen completely change the course of a project. Like you bring in one junior on a team of 10 people and the junior's like, well, I made these doodles at lunch and I thought this would be cool. And then everybody's like, we haven't been thinking this direction. That's amazing. Suddenly they're like, wait, let's, you know, you know, um, you look at Team Fortress 2, which kind of made a mark um, 
you know, around 2010 and, and 2009-ish. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, TF2 style, you know, very cartoony, you know, back to, to kind of older style propaganda looking. It started as a Counter-Strike kind of visual clone. It was just, you know, realistic looking military people in bunkers with, you know, camo and stuff. And they had a point where they're like, no, we need to do something with more impact. And they created something that then swept across art-wise and changed this people's outlook on simplicity because they're like, oh, you don't have to be super detailed to make a really amazing looking game. And that also came with it an innovation on what FPSs are too that changed that landscape for the foreseeable as well. It, it's kind of like, it's, it's not boring. I think it's very interesting that it's mimicked in art and outside of art is kind of the same patterns. With uh, Hearthstone specifically, I remember um, there was the Wrath of the Old Gods, which was one of the older sets, and then there was the uh, Dark Moon Fair, which was also Old Gods uh, yeah. associated. So both of them had the four Old Gods in each of the sets. Mm -hmm. And if you compared the Old Gods to the old set, there was like dark black shadows, and in the new set, there were highly saturated colors of the shadows. So yep. like, what would bring on that change? Was that like a a drive towards having that be more colorful or was it a, a change in art director or what was, uh, up uh I think it was, I think it was kind of both. I think it was also, um, our team specifically tries not, even if we're repeating ourselves, we try not to repeat ourselves in the same way. So like, if we're like, we're going to, we're going to tread over this ground and it's cool that we're treading over this ground again, but the scenery is going to change a little bit. You know what I mean? So the, the old God set was very dark, very purposefully dark. It was under a different art direction and had a different art team at the time. But a lot of our art um, comes from cinematics and a lot of our card art is outsourced. So a lot of the people who are outsourcing card art now are the same people that were doing it then. And um, we still have, you know, one of the same um, outsourced art people that we had back then. So the, Figuring out who's going to do the art was the same, but I think the direction still internally was we're aware we're kind of going to a similar place. How do we punch it up or change the feeling? And also, you know, internally, we were treating the art differently as well. So there's always, um, I can talk about that sets in Hearthstone are usually flavor first and then art second. So design will sit down and go, what's a set going to be? And then they go, oh, we, we're really excited about this set. Like, literally, they'll get excited about it. They'll be like, whoa, this is awesome. And, you know, I would be just like, you know, anyone and their friends sitting around be like, you know, it'd be really cool. Only they're like, you know, it'd be really cool. And let's make it work. Um, and they do that. And once they hit on something and they're like, okay, here's the theme, then art team gets it. And we are given time to actually go, okay, we're going to start drawing out what these things look like or designing these characters for this or what have you. Um, and there's a lot of time that's given to that now more than actually ever. And then that's given as a guide to outsourced artists who then use that as their cue for this is what we'll be doing. You know, so like if you were working on uh, Madness of the Dark Moon Fair, you'd be given a, a kind of digital booklet that's like, here's the cues to take the visuals from. And you, you'll be drawing um, artwork that's kind of, along these lines. So maybe it's more colorful, maybe it's, you know, more wonky and whatnot. Um, we were playing a lot of those, those color contrasts and like the purples and greens and the, you know, purples and reds and, and kind of trying to get those like it, things that could look like they were on like a poster for a carnival. You know what I mean? And uh, because especially with something in Hearthstone, what you're doing a lot of the time is you're trying to channel people's 
memory of what they did in World of Warcraft, not what it looked like, but what they remember it looking like. So when you go to the Dark Moon Fair, it's pretty cool. But when you go to the Dark Moon Fair in your mind, it's cooler because <laughs> you're. It's like it's like when you show somebody a sketch, right? And they're like, "Oh, why does my inks look worse than my sketch?" Well, it's because you've got possible lines, and everybody's seeing what their mind tells them is the coolest looking version. That's what we try to channel. Um, it's difficult, um, and it relies heavily on using different artists to then create those images, um, which is why I think outsourcing the art is great because if we did all the art for Hearthstone internally, it would start to look kind of samey. Um, like I went to BlizzCon in 2019. I was, they were kind enough to invite me there to, to run a table and people actually came up and they're like, I can recognize your art specifically on cards. And I'm like, that's awesome. And they're like, yours is kind of like darker and a little like it's in style, but kind of not. And I'm like, good you know like that feels good because it means that we're still hitting some version of every card doesn't literally look the same and so we want sets to not literally look the same too that's why when boards are created for the game different people will work on different boards a lot of the time so a new set comes out you've got the dark moon fair board i did that one but then you've got older boards somebody else did that like it was jerry or it was charlene or or whomever and that also injects new ideas, new approaches, and new ways of, of painting things just for something that's literally going to be kind of the same each time. Um, I think that injects a lot of that freshness into something that's still eventually not going to be that fresh in the long term. Um, quick change of topic back to something that you mentioned earlier. Uh, there was a follow-up question uh, from the chat. Uh, is there much bullying in the art industry I'm going to assume that they maybe mean the, the gaming industry or maybe the maybe you could speak to both the gaming industry and the art industry uh, against artists who do anime fan art or furry on the side. I would I would assume he, he they mean more specifically like the sort of like subculture, less yeah. mainstream work. Um, yes, there there is, but not like it used to be. Um, I would say 10, you know, 15 years ago. Um, if, if, if people were, if you were showing somebody your work and it was furry or anime, no matter how good it was, they'd be like, Oh, you know, one of those people. Whereas now you get a lot more cross genre, which is interesting. Um, there's a lot more furries in the industry than people realize and want to admit. Um, there's a anime is directing the, the industry in a way it never did before. So is furry and other things like that, because furry is no longer one thing. Like if you ask somebody what furry art is and you ask 10 people, you're going to get like 10 different answers or maybe at least six different answers, depending. Um, and anime fan art runs the gamut, you know, to some people, anime fan art is just boobs with people attached to other people. It's like really rad pictures and everything in between. You've got all this stuff and it all has value. And people have started to realize that it all has value. Um, and to me, that's very exciting, but it still exists. Like, um, I still talk to people within the industry sometimes and they'll be like, I looked at your site and there's like some weird stuff in it. Like you got like weird anime stuff and, and like dragon people and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, like I wear my art on my sleeve. You know what I mean? I, I'm not, I don't hide what I care about and what I do on my own time, but I also don't suggest that that's representing what the company I work for is doing. 
Um, but a lot of times, I think years ago, you would get people who got in the industry and they were like, I'm an industry professional, so I only do professional work and it always looks this way. And now you've got people just, they're all over the place and you're hiring people who don't have college degrees. I, didn't, I never went to art college. You know, I was never instructed how to do art. Um, but when I got in the industry, it was still like, do you have a college degree? Well, I don't know. He probably can't hire you. And now people have realized, well, you just need to be able to do the work and understand it. And people are learning and thriving on the internet in ways that college can teach or better. And so that's kind of, uh, to get back to the, the point um, or the question rather, which is, is there bullying amongst art and uh, in a professional capacity in the gaming industry and art freelance industry? Yes, there is, but I think there's too many people who do all these subgenres now to really ever be like silenced and they're too good. And a lot of them are quite frankly better than the people who are bullying them. So what a lot of people realize is they're gatekeepers. They're just people trying to keep people out because they're like, I personally don't like this. I don't want this here. It has no value. And they aren't able to convince people that well anymore. Um, when I was brought into Red 5, my AD brought me on and called me the animal artist. Cause he's like, you just draw like tiger people or something. Right. And I'm like, they're dragons actually, but thanks. You know, it's like, you know, you just, you, as long as you know who you are and you're comfortable with who you are, people can't push you down from that because your talent's going to speak for itself and your ability is going to speak for itself. Does that mean that you can get into every job with a portfolio full of furry art? Probably not if that's not what they're looking for, but will people respect your ability more than they used to? Hell yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, but people will always disrespect other people and have personal biases. Even when you're a professional, it doesn't necessarily mean you behave professionally. So treat each person individually. And when you speak with them, I think is is the key to take away from that. After uh, your time at Red 5, I've heard you say on stream that you were prepared to live the rest of your life just doing freelance and uh, independent art. Uh, what kind of income were you thinking about living on at that point? Like uh, how much were commissions? Were you thinking I can sell these commissions for this much money and be able to sustain a living? Uh, I didn't have exact numbers. Uh, I, so I live with my wife, Cami, who also does art. And we were like, well, we can combine our income. We can maybe do a Patreon or whatever. Um, it's going to be a lot of commissions. Cause I don't like, I don't like price gouging. So I wouldn't go like, I can get 5,000. So I should just get 5,000, even if I know it's not worth 5,000. So I was like, you know, what, what numbers are we looking at? Um, what's the demand? What would I end up doing? And the problem was at that point, um, there were far more artists around than when I had a following online while I was doing freelance before. So I lost a lot of like audience or what have you. So there was no like, I'm open for commissions and just everybody would jump on it necessarily. You have to work harder for it. And I was like taking that into account and I was looking at Patreon and whatnot. And I was like, it's going to be a lot of work. I didn't ever really land on exact numbers because what I realized was it was going to be more work than I wanted to do because it would still be less than what I was making on salary at Red 5, which wasn't a fun place to work, but paid pretty darn well. So that's when I was like, well, how am I going to make this work then? So my idea at that point was to just take more prominent freelance jobs, things like card art for companies and stuff that would pay a baseline of at least a thousand or more per image and then uh, and kind of go for there because it felt like I couldn't function off of just random commissions that you wouldn't rely on constant income from. And I couldn't generate a big enough audience streaming on Twitch and doing a Patreon to really 
create more than like a couple hundred dollars a month, which is just, we live in Southern California. Let's just say that our rent is not cheap. <laughs> so, um, so I was like, well, we could move to a cheaper place and make it work, or we could live where we want to live and, and figure something out. So um, I think it's totally viable, though, to live off freelance now more than ever. Um, I think you can make more money doing it than ever. And I think you can make that money doing more things than ever before. Because, again, people are more open to furry art or anime art or whatever you're doing or pictures of cars or what have you. And uh, Twitter and Instagram and social media is kind of like they aren't Instagram's meant for photos and art, but Twitter isn't really made for art, but people still use it for art. I use it for art. It's my main posting area. And um, you'll realize there's a lot of people who are very passionate about it and have a lot of money that they want to spend on it. And if you can deliver, then you can make a pretty healthy living. It's just... Um, at that point, what I was wanting out of life was honestly more time to do my own stuff. So I didn't want to trap myself in a situation where I'm like, I'm making a good living. But once again, I'm just working all the time. Um, it sounds kind of conceited, but uh, what I would say was I spent a majority of my career bringing other people's dreams to life. And so I just lost my own. And, uh, and that sounds very heavy and like dramatic. But the truth of it was I wasn't happy. Um, and in order to be happy, I needed some time to myself and be able to do my own stuff. So I realized that wasn't a good avenue for me. And I know that's not quite the answer to what you asked, but hopefully it's at least relevant. It, I think it is relevant. Um, and it's important to hear because I think that it's a, it's a very seductive trap to fall into. Um, there's a the great, I don't know if you know who Terrence McKenna is, but he has this great saying that, like if, if you don't have your own plan, you're going to become part of somebody else's. And that's sort of like become this, this mantra that I have to keep going. Cause I echo a lot of what you're expressing as far as like, okay, well, I've spent the majority of my career making somebody else's dreams come true. And now it, if you even ask me, what do you, what, what you can do anything? What is it? Oh, deer in the headlights. Um, so yeah. when you were in the, uh, interim after red five and kind of doing uh freelance work you mentioned patreon commissions and more prominent contract work were you doing any like tutorials brush sets or merch sales at all um so i'm in a weird position where i feel i have a lot of experience and i've learned through streaming how to express how i do things and explain it to people and and give i guess people would call it art advice but that advice always kind of scares me. It's a scary word. It's like, you should listen specifically to this. And I'm like, maybe you should just think about what I'm saying and see if it works for you or not. Um, but I don't think of myself as a teacher per se. So what I did was I, I don't sell brushes because I just don't, um, I'm not going to make a brush that's any different than anybody else uses. And honestly, I use a lot of basic brushes anyways. So it's like people will ask for that and I'll kind of annoy them because I'll be like, I'm just using the hard round half the time. I just paint on one layer half the time. I just, uh, you know, you can use a million layers and different brushes. I just don't have them. Um, but I tried doing a workshop because through streaming, people who were coming in convinced me that they were like, look, you, I want to pay you for this. I'd love to have some one-on-one -on -one time. And I'm like, well, I'll look into doing that. And to me, a workshop um, is not going to be, I made a video tutorial for how I did a drawing. 
because I would have to dispense information in the way that I accept information, which means if I watch a video of somebody doing a picture, I'm like, cool, I can do your picture now. I'm like, I might get how you did it, but I don't get to ask questions that are relevant to myself. And to me, teaching somebody has as much to do with dispensing information as it does to getting to know the person you're teaching, to know what they want to get out of it so you can cater what you're saying to what they need. Um, that is very difficult. And there's a reason people don't do that because it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and it's hard to get paid adequately for that effort and time. But that's what I did. I embarked on a month long um, workshop. I took on eight people. Um, I charged $525 per spot. Um, it was supposed to be two weeks of environment course and two weeks of character design. Each week had one to one and a half one-on-ones with each student of up to three hours at a time where we would just share screen, talk about stuff, go over stuff. It would also supposed to be like, I'm posting in the discord, a whole bunch of information and how to's and stuff like that. And almost immediately when I started the course, people were like, whoa, you're only charging this much. That's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to overcharge people. Cause I feel like it feels weird for me to charge people for, you know, teach you about artwork, but I'm like, I just gotten laid off anyway. So I was like, it's a good time to make some money. Um, but uh, immediately that workshop evolved into something else. I realized a month wasn't enough time for what I wanted to convey. And everybody in the workshop was like, I like the one-on-ones better than reading stuff or watching a video. Can we just do that? And I was like, hells yeah, that's way easier for me too. And it fulfills the, the aspect that I said is most important, which is getting to know who you're teaching so you understand what they want. I don't teach people how to do what I do specifically and tell them what I do is the best. I want to know, even if I don't particularly lean towards the art that they do, if I can help them achieve what they want with that type of art. Because a lot of people who were in my workshop, by that I mean four out of eight, which is a pretty big percentage, 50%, were like, yeah, um, I fell out of love with art because I had taken an instructional course or whatever and was told my art style isn't valid or I could never get work doing this or I shouldn't love this thing. I should be doing what this person said, you know, prominent YouTuber or prominent whatever. And I'm like, well, you have the benefit that I <laughs> nobody knows who I am, but uh, also the fact that I've I've been in that situation before and I understand. So we're going to take a lot of time and figure out what you want to do and we'll try and get you there. And it was a lot of work and a lot of stress on my part because I was very invested and we did it and it extended the course from one month to two months. Um, I didn't charge anybody any extra money. Um, and so I was just like, we need to do this and we need to do this right. And once I finished, Everybody apparently was very satisfied and they're still very kind about it. And they said they learned a lot and I was able to just spend hours dispensing information and showing demo wise, you know, here's why we do this and here's what you could consider and here's resources. But I don't think I could ever do it again. Um, so that's a really long tangential answer to say, I don't sell brushes. I wasn't going to, I don't sell tutorials because I think other people say what I would already say in tutorials anyways. Um, they probably say it better. And my approach to teaching and learning is very different, I've noticed, than a lot of people whose tutorials I see. Um, I think there's more to it than I use this brush and I put a layer on and I put multiply. Like there's approach, a mental technique, uh, understanding of not just fundamentals, but what your intentions are and what you want to convey. And a lot of the times, um, 
I would just see tutorials that are just like, this is how art is done. And if you do this other thing, it's bad. And I'm like, that feels more destructive. And I don't want to be a destructive force for other people either. What if I say the wrong thing? So I just kind of shied away from it. I'm like, you know what? I'd feel safer just doing art for people and having them go, I like it or do it again. So that's, that's where I lied on that. So I never really pursued like Gumroad stuff and whatnot because I felt like maybe it would betray my personal intentions. Not to push you into doing something you don't want to do, but just my thought was uh, people that do tutor that buy tutorials, uh, they tend to want to buy tutorials until they find something that clicks with them. So it could be that they're buying a lot of stuff that already exists out there that you might think that other people have said better, but you say it in the way that they actually click with. So oh, yeah. Um, and, and I agree, but that's why, honestly, I, I just stream and I just do it for free. Because <laughs> I'm kind of like, I, I, and I'm in, a, I'm in a unique position now where, honestly, I make enough. I make enough. If, if, if my boss ever hears this, I don't make enough, but I do make enough. Um, which is, We're going to edit I, that part out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will never make enough. Um, I make enough to live comfortably. I'm not a greedy person. Um, I've lived half my life very poor. Um, I'm happy to have a place to live and do whatever. So at this point, I'm like, I'll just stream and then there's no pressure. And if I can teach people or, or discuss people with people, not discuss people, discuss with people. <laughs> that too. Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, I can do it and there's no real monetary involvement unless they want to just support the stream, then people can donate if they want to. And if they don't, no worries. Um, and so I just, I just kind of converted it to that. And then I don't feel the pressure of making tutorials. And I, I, since I don't need the money, I want the money. I was like, well, then I won't do it. I'll just do it this way. And it, it's worked out pretty well for how I function. I think. How terribly un-American of you. Let's talk more <laughs> about money. Um, because there is an aspect of this conversation that is, is very important. We hit on it earlier and I wanted to come back to it uh, and it has to do with pricing and learning how to price yourself. I feel like this is a skill that is arguably as important as any artistic skill you're going to have. And it's one that nobody seems to, well, I'm being super dramatic, not nobody. Very few people seem to really like, um, have access to accurate information and maybe that's more a function of the overwhelming amount of misinformation out there when you're when you were on your own how much did you charge and how did you know how much you should charge um so it depended on it, the price changed depending on what it was first of all i never was just like a character is 80 dollars because that character obviously could be a stick figure, or it could be, you know, I've got 30 jackets on at the same time and I want to see the front pocket on each of them, you know? So the, the, the variation in detail and approach and whatnot was there, but I had a general rule of if I were doing a character of moderate, you know, whatever, and it was going to be painted, it would be like this much towards the end of my freelance career. Um, generally people wanted like a single character and that would, generally be like a hundred or so if I could swing it. Um, if people wanted something involved, like I want a portrait with a big involved painted background, it could go upwards towards like 300 to 500, depending on how many characters were in there and how big they wanted it and how detailed they wanted it. And that's if it was painted, like then if it was cell shaded, you know, you drop a bunch of money off. And if they were like, oh, well, I want to introduce new characters. 
I never, I never gave like a deal for having more characters. If you had two characters, it was two times the cost of one character. If it was three, it was three times because it's literally just, you're getting more commissions, but I don't think I'm doing less work. So I'm not worried about it. If you want it, you'll get it. If you don't, you won't. But I was honestly, I feel undercharging for what I was delivering um, at the time. Um, I think the big issue for price. So what I'm saying is my prices right now that I'm listing are not relevant to today. <laughs> um, uh, and then I went in and I did freelance later for like a little bit and I undercharged on purpose because I was like, people keep asking and I'll just give them the opportunity to get something, but I still get paid for it. But I don't want to be like, no, it's a million dollars. Um, but I think the issue with pricing is, is not just misinformation, but that a lot of people feel scared of committing to a price because they're like, well, as soon as I list a price, all possibilities are gone. It's like, you know, Schrodinger's, you know, price point, you know, is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it dead? Will it, will it get me a commission? Um, so, you know, should I knock my price down to be competitive? Should I raise my price to treat myself better? Um, is it too expensive? Will people hate me? Is there, you know, am I, using, am I using social currency now? And of course, there's the complications that if you undercut a bunch of your fellow artists, they hate you, you know, because then they're like, well, you're, you're telling people that it's worth less than we're charging. And, and nobody's ever giving an exact amount of, there is no like sheet that someone can have that is the universal one character wearing a hat and a white sweatshirt costs this much. So you have to, I think before anything, if you're looking for pricing, just look for work that's comparable to yours that you think somebody's genuinely working hard on and not phoning in and see what their price points are and try and find where that average is. Is it on the high end? Is it on the low end? Don't ever approach the lowest because you're always going to be lowballing yourself. And, and if you honestly have people you trust, especially people you trust who have done a lot of freelance and live off of it, or people you trust in the industry that have done freelance, see if you can open a personal dialogue with them and just discuss with them and, and bounce things off of them because a lot of people overvalue or undervalue themselves. I still think overvaluing yourself is better than undervaluing yourself um, because I see more artists who do freelance that undercharge for what they do than overcharge simply because they're afraid of making people upset or not getting any work. And the problem is you can't always tell if your pricing is what's not getting you work because again, you post on social media, you stream, three people come into your stream, that's a win, that's three friends. Three people heart your thing on Twitter, that's a win, that's three friends, but they're not buying commissions from you. Nobody else is seeing your work. Is it because of your prices or is it because you're lost in the static because there's a million artists getting promoted every day? And if you're using Twitter and you don't click the little star at the top and go show me newest posts, half the posts that people post you don't see because they're overridden by all the ones that have 30,000 likes and retweets. So it's a rich get richer and the poor stay poor kind of situation of social media. Is it your pricing at all? Um, so that's why I say err on the side of raising your prices a little bit if you feel that you're really putting the work in because it's very easy to convince yourself you're charging too much when you're not because other circumstances are bleeding in. Not only that, but when you try to undercut somebody else, chances are that person might also be undercutting somebody else. So all you're doing is just continually doing a race to the bottom to see who can charge the least and still survive. That happens. 
Yeah, that happened on the convention circuit for a while too, um, where you had people posting art up at conventions for a really high amount, like literally doing the whale catch, you know, where they're like, well, I only need to sell one and I made my convention, you know, I made like 3,000. And then other people going like, well, I'm going to sell all my color prints for $1. And then people are like, why is this guy selling a color print for $20? And this guy's selling for $1. Ends up the $20 was undercutting all the $25. And it just kind of, it, it just screwed everything up until people finally realized the answer was maybe just do what felt right to you. But unfortunately, we're back at the start, which is what is that though? What's the right answer? Um, I don't feel there's always a correct answer, but you can certainly err on the side of caution by getting opinions from people that you feel A, are experienced and B, you can trust. Um, but it really depends on what you're putting out there and what the call is for it. Sometimes people will see very simplistic art and see that it's selling for $700 and they'll be like, that's not fair. And it's like, sure, but the demand is high. The notoriety is high. Maybe they're very popular or maybe they're attached to a different project. A lot of that value isn't even how complex and crazy the art is. It's who made the art. You know what I mean? What it's of, what they're attached to. You're like, oh, this person art directed my favorite game and they doodled on a napkin. I'm going to pay $5,000 for it the value fluctuates. So you got to keep that in mind too. There's a lot of weird factors and gears churning that unfortunately leaves the average person in a, in a void of, you know, nothingness when it comes to answers to that question. Yeah. The uh, thing that makes me really happy about what you just said is, you know, find, find people that you trust, you know, and who you respect and avoid paying attention to the comments threads on Twitter posts that have <laughs> to do with this conversation. Cause that will definitely steer you in the wrong direction. Yeah. And there's two things happening there that I think are worth pointing out. Uh, one is that there's a high incentive for people to keep prices low so that they can continue to afford the art that they want to buy. Um, yes. Yeah. And two, there's the artists that have internalized this misinformation and keep propagating it because they think that it's the right information and yeah. they need to keep getting the income. So it, you have, you have people that are incentivized to keep your prices low and people that don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it together. Is hard to, it's hard to decipher from that too, because Twitter in specific is a platform where someone could know what they're talking about and someone could have no idea. And they both speak with such confidence that the lay person shows up and goes, well, both these people are right. I'm convinced. And you walk away going, I don't know what happened. Um, but a lot of people want to talk about a subject and have an answer because they feel in order to talk about it, you have to have a definitive answer. I'm sure you've noticed I haven't said a specific price point for something because I don't have the definitive answer. But I think the fear of not knowing or admitting you don't have a solid answer, but you can offer relevant information keeps people from giving relevant information as well. So those conversations break down to people just bickering. And you get a lot of those people who are like, well, that's too high. But what nobody realizes is that person was never going to buy something from you anyway. They're just there to drive the market down, like you said. Or half the time they're like, well, I would never buy this for $500. And they're, they're just mad that it's not free. They will never buy anything from you until it's free. And if it was free and they had to pay the shipping, they still wouldn't get it from you. Because they don't care about supporting someone. They think about themselves. And a lot of people are selfish. And uh, they will play off people's better nature, which is to assume that someone isn't out to harm them. But sometimes people are just about themselves and you have to be wary of that. 
there's a sidebar conversation that's happening in the chat that I think is is worth commenting on, uh, and I would like to hear your take on it because it, it inevitably comes up in this conversation, uh, which is the idea of um, standard of living or countries that have lower standards of living than the West, and the artists that live there may be able to make a comfortable living by charging less than artists that live in Western countries. And that could be perceived as undercutting, but really they're just charging what is, you know, a comfortable wage for them. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, this, this juxtaposes to the industry where a lot of outsourcing companies are outside of the U S sorry, hold on. Okay. Thank you. My phone was buzzing. Um, Where, you outsource to companies in India or wherever, and those artists get paid like almost nothing compared to what you get paid over here, which is why you're using that outsource company. And then they're stuck getting paid that because that's the expected rate. But the thing about doing freelance on the internet is if you're in Brazil, if you're in India, if you're in, you know, Mexico, if you're in wherever, I'm just naming countries, not for any specific reason, but if you're outside of the U S especially in, in parts of Europe, um, you can make a living for a lot less, but you're also in an uh, opportunistic area where you could charge what those people are charging elsewhere in the world because now the field is flat. You're in the same arena they are. It's just based off what you're offering and how good it is. So you could now make way more money than what's expected for somebody who works where you live. Is that how it works out? Not always, but you can. And I know a lot of artists who do that specifically. And one of them wanted to move to the US and then was like, no, I'm staying here because I make US rates, but I'm like rich here. And that's what I'm going to do. And they, they just decided to do that. And you can, but that pressure is there too. And, and for one person I knew it was actually from friends of theirs who, you know, lived locally and were like, you can't make that kind of money doing that. You know, that's not the kind of money that we make here. And it's like, whoa, what's your intention of saying that? Cause it sounds like nothing but poison is coming out of your mouth, you know? Um, but I, I, I think the simple answer would be do your best if you're freelancing to just charge up what other people charge and make that extra benefit of the fact that you're just going to make relatively what comes out to a lot more money. Um, when, when you're undercharging, if your intent isn't to undercharge, but then you're faced with the fact that you might be, it's a good opportunity to then just raise your prices and go, if I can make this work, then I'm going to benefit. A lot of people have done it. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out. I'm going to tell you the reality of the situation, which is sometimes people raise their prices and they do get less work. But most people I've talked to that raise their prices without going, well, it was 300 and now it's 5,000. You know what I mean? Like when they get into that, that area that makes more sense, usually two things happen, not always, but usually one is they still get work and then they realize I can spend a little more time on this or I can spend less time working and make the same amount of money and they are happier. But two, every once in a while, it creates um, a uh, imparted value and perceived scarcity where it's like, well, this person's charging more. Fewer people are going to be able to get this. Its inherent value is greater now, not just because they put that monetary value on there, but because literally less people can get it. Now I want it more. And sometimes people will come out of the woodwork that are buying from these people that didn't buy from them before. And it doesn't always happen. But like I said, there's there's weird little things that occur on all sides of that that you might not expect. But um, 
we worked with an outsourcing company over in India. I actually did art directing for um, Double Fine uh, for the remaster of Full Throttle, which was a weird job to get because I got it because the previous art director was an awful person. <laughs> so when we were talking about rotation of art directors, it was an art director who was not local at a time that work from home was not a big thing because, you know, um, so I was brought in because I knew somebody because I had worked with the outsourcing company before as an agent working for a company sending the outsourcing. And they're like, do you want to work for us and art direct this project? Because the previous art director was not pulling his weight. And so I did that and I took a team and moved them from being behind by three weeks to finishing two weeks ahead of schedule. And the team went from being miserable and nervous to being very confident and happy. I didn't do this specifically. We did it as a team, them and myself, because they were being yelled at and mistreated. And I treated them like people and artists, which they are. But unfortunately, the previous art director had looked at how much they were getting paid, which I wasn't privy to at the time, and was like, oh, they're not getting paid much. They don't really have worth as artists and people, so I'm just going to treat them like badly and be like, well, I'm the big guy making a lot of money. And so they kicked him out, put me in there, and I'm like super sympathetic. And I'm like, well, these people don't get paid enough, and they're not going to get credited and, and all this stuff. So over the course of that, what happened is they got pay raises, they got credited for their work, they were given agency in what they did and given direction. And I spent a lot of time working hours that were weird because they're over in India and I'm in California, or, or I was actually in Georgia at the time, but I'm in the States, and, uh, and cultivated an attitude amongst them that maybe they were worth more, even though the pay rates in their country were saying that they weren't. Um, I think that's very difficult to do in that. And I don't think as an industry we can do it, but my point is in freelance, you can do it yourself. You can be that agent of change at any time. It won't necessarily be the same circumstance. It may not always work out, but you definitely can. And I think it's important for people to support each other on the working side too, because a lot of the times people will work in freelance and they'd be like, well, everyone else is my competition. And it's like, you know, we actually have enough work to go around right now. You can help each other out and create networks of positivity Sounds a little silly, but it, it works. And suddenly you'll get better work from more reliable vetted sources and you'll be making more money. And people will also know all the people in this string of people are reliable and, uh, and can vouch for each other. And then the people who they've done work for can vouch for them. And instead of seeing people as your competition, you raise each other up, you go, we're gonna keep our prices around here so we all get respected. And you can help people out who are from other countries and be like, hey, you know, you can do this at this price point and you're going to be okay because you can see the field. It, you might as well be in America if you're freelancing from another country at that point because what people are going to see is the value of your work and then what you're charging. Um, yeah, there's going to be currency conversion on your end and whatever, but to the end user, it's the same as if you were sitting next to me in California right now. Yeah, it's it's hard to make the argument without sounding like I'm trying to convince you to raise your prices for me. Yeah, yeah. It's not that. It's it's that you should raise your prices for yourself primarily, and then all of us, (laughs) because like I I I understand like why the argument makes immediate sense on the surface. The logic is sound, but if you just take it a step lower, and you and you realize that like everybody understands why like sweatshops are a bad thing. And why the exploitation of cheap labor is 
is a bad thing. Like that's self-explanatory and everybody kind of understands this idea of the, the negative fallout from globalization. But then like we'll immediately make the case for self-imposed lower price rates because they live in a country where the standard of living is low. And it's kind of like, man, there's plenty of ways to get exploited in this world. Don't do it to yourself. Seems like the, the, the immediately obvious thing to me, but it doesn't, I don't know. It seems to not come out that way sometimes. I think it's, it's just difficult because a lot of the times artists, I'm saying a lot of the times, all the time, I'm sorry. Um, I think often, there we go. Now we're on a different page. Um, artists are in their own head. They're sitting a lot of times by themselves or with their friends or people who might actually sit on the internet and critique them constantly and devalue their work. So it's hard for them to find the confidence in themselves to then go, I'm worth this much or I'm worth that much. Um, I think a lot of the times I run into artists who are just like, yeah, my art's trash, I'm trash or whatever. And they, they enjoy that self-sabotage almost. Like it's not even fake modesty, it's just self-destruction where they've heard from somebody or even just told themselves, like it's, it's not good to enjoy what you do. Um, I ran into an artist who told me that they had paid for a workshop from somebody. I'm not gonna say who it was, but this person said, you, the moment you enjoy the work that you do art-wise, you have plateaued and you will fail as an artist because you will stop getting better. And now when I say this now, obviously in this context, you're probably like, well, that's ridiculous. But it was delivered in such a way that it convinced a lot of people that you're not supposed to be satisfied with your work. The spirit of it was always look to improve if you can, right? We're in this together. But the delivery was hate yourself, hate what you do, never be satisfied. If you're happy, you're bad. And so that created a few artists that were then like, well, I don't like what I do. They stopped enjoying what they did. One of them specifically dropped out of art and I still never was able to get them to do it again. Um, Cause I'm not gonna force them to do something they don't wanna do, but they lost the love of it and it didn't return. Um, and a lot of people then perpetuated that information and were like, yeah, if you're ever happy with your artwork, man, that's stupid. You're never gonna be anybody. And it's like, some of those people bled into the industry and I worked with one of them who was then like, oh, you like what you did, huh? <laughs> guess you're a nobody and it's like are you are you for real are you a cartoon character and it's like no this is a real person who was hurt by bad information with what might have originally been a good intent but for all i know it was meant to sell a video you don't know but that comes back to all these factors that can play into why somebody might undercharge or not have the confidence to really look at themselves as having a value greater than whatever their lowball price is and it's just it's hard to combat that because I feel like, even like what we're doing right now, there's a million people doing what we're doing right now, discussing this and saying, well, this is what I think is right. And a lot of the times when someone's starting out, they just wanna, they just want an answer. What, what should I do? And they hear all of us saying tons of different things. And that's why when I talk about it, I think this kind of format is best where it's like, here's considerations and ideas, but we're never telling you, you absolutely should be this person or do this thing, or it will work for you. It's information for consideration that you can then think about yourself and see if it applies to you. Um, but when it's not packaged that way, I think it creates a lot of self-loathing artists who are afraid to charge more and feel that they aren't up to 
the standards of other people. And then that's compiled against whenever they log into Twitter and they see someone like Dave Raposa, who's on everybody's artist list with like, he posted something five minutes ago and it's already got 20,000 views on it or whatever. And they're like, well, that's not me. And it's like, no, it's not you, but you are you and you're the one we're talking about. You know what I mean? It's like, we're not talking about Dave. Dave's cool, but you're cool. So understand what that means, but it's hard to recover from that. I think um, I, it's not just social media, but those kind of situations are really positive and really destructive. And it's relative to everything we've talked about so far. Yeah, Nen Chang, Nen Chang gave me a powerful antidote to the self-destructive mentality, which is that somebody likes your work. So don't insult them by insulting your own work. Um, but I would like to move back to talking about you for like the last little bit of this. <laughs> um, because we wanted to uh, ask you a couple of things about uh, going to work for Blizzard. Sure. Um, because that's that's a that's a high watermark for a lot of people. Um, what for you? What spurred the um, interest in going back to working for a studio? Um, it wasn't because I wanted to do it <laughs> specifically. Like, okay, uh, a little bit of backstory. When I was when I was before I started drawing ever, I was playing like Warcraft two and Warcraft three, and I was like dude, I love Blizzard games. I love Diablo. I love all these things. And I'm like, man, I want to, I want to make games one day. It'd be rad to like make these games or work on them, you know? And, um, over the course of my life, I kind of fell out of love with that idea. I fell more in love with, I want to make my own game. And then I realized chances of me ever doing that outside of indie space are very low. So then I'm like, I want to do something for a living that I like that will support me doing what I really want to do, not for a living, which is great because it doesn't have the stress of having to deliver on a project. I can just draw whatever I want, whenever I want. Spoilers, that's what I do now. So um, when I stopped working for Red5, um, I did a little bit of freelance and then got into a indie game. Uh, I worked with Cami, was my wife, and then two other people. And over the course of one year and three months, we made an entire workable indie game um, that was heavily art intensive some of the art for that's actually on my art station. Um, and Cammy and I were the only artists on the project. We art directed the entire thing. Um, we revamped what the project was going to be, which was a little like knockoff game and made it something that was visually very much our own. We had a blast. We worked more than we had in a long time, including at Red 5. And, uh, and then when it came out, um, it didn't come out because one of the people on the team had no confidence in the project because they were like, well, if it doesn't make a lot of money, it might just fail. And then that would be bad. And I was trying to convince them that having it come out and fail is better than never putting it out because you can still use that as look what we made. It's great. It may not have resonated, but now we can get investments in the, you know, the things that lead up to like what Apple arcade began um, where Apple arcade coincidentally enough is where one of the people who works <laughs> we worked with on the indie game now works is one of those people you would pitch to at Apple Arcade um, is people just come up with pitches and they go, I've done this before. This is an idea. We drew a doodle of a guy. This is the guy you'll play as. Give us some money to make a game. And Apple Arcade goes, all right, cool. You could have that. 
by having that come out and fail. Failures aren't always losses. Wins aren't always wins. Um, and, and that's hard to convey to somebody. And even this person who was an industry veteran, um, he helped make the freaking media bar on the original Xbox. Like he's been around, but he just couldn't see the value in releasing a game that failed. I'm not throwing him under the bus. I love you, buddy, wherever you are. But it's what happened, and we've discussed it before, and, and we came to terms with it since then. Um, and so after that, I was, like, disheartened. I'm like, why did we do this work anyways, you know, and make almost no money whatsoever doing it because we didn't really have investors. And I'm like, okay. So went back into freelance, got picked up by a mobile game company um, that then worked under the GameStop flag because they were acquired by GameStop. They were then unacquired by GameStop because GameStop didn't want to put money into it and didn't want to hire people, but then were angry that the games weren't being made the way they wanted. Were acquired by a different company, then acquired by Congregate, who then Congregate was under an umbrella of a different company. So basically I was working for Congregate proper uh, doing mobile games. Um, I did an office space game, the old movie, um, <laughs> did, a, did some other stuff, but they were all like idle games and knockoff games. So it like had no heart to it. You know what I mean? It's like, let's look at the mobile metrics and make lots of money. The end, they made lots of money. I didn't care. Um, everything was like shave the edges off of everything, make it look like everything else. Um, a lot of times the game pitches were, look at these five top mobile games, we're making this. And then, you know, you're like, it felt like following a whale around and trying to eat, you know, the parasites off of it. Like you're just like, you're not even the parasite. You're the thing that's chasing the parasite. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that was a little disheartening. But then, when they finally were going to pay me better and put me in a direct uh, a, a director's like seat, uh, I got laid off um, instead. Uh, two weeks after, they were like offering me all this cool stuff. And at the same time, my wife had worked for the same company and was laid off on the same day because we were on the same team. So then we went from being gainfully employed to being laid off on the same day. And I was kind of thinking about this and I'm like, do we do we do the stuff we were talking about before? Do we do the freelance life again that I ran from in 2010? And I was like, no, but I don't know what to do. And I went to BlizzCon and I worked uh, next to one of my old buddies who worked on Hearthstone and I'd been doing Hearthstone card art for years at this point. And he's like, you need to just come inside. He's like, we <laughs> kind of need you here. And I was like, yeah, but I don't know. I was talking with another buddy of mine, Adam, who, who worked at a different company. He's like, you could work with me. And I'm like, well, I like you too. Like, and I was just started realizing I have to go into a studio to do the things I want to do because once again, I need to make a good amount of money doing something I enjoy and then have a lot of time outside of that to do what I want to do most. And most people that I've talked to in the industry feel like you're not supposed to say your job is not the number one thing you want to do because it's like, oh, well, you might get fired if they find out this isn't the number one thing you want to do. And I'm like, then why are people doing stuff outside of work? Why aren't you just sleeping at work then if that's the number one thing you want to do? You get paid for it for a reason. You can love your job and still love something more. And so I was like, well, that's fine. I'm good with that. I will try to get this job then. And I got the job. Um, and what I didn't realize was that I had been afraid of working in studios because of Red 5 Studios and my bad experience there. And then my experience with the Congregate Studio and so on and so forth. And I had spent a lot of my career being undervalued, which is funny, but 
Like I would talk to people who liked my work. Thank you, anyone who's ever liked my work. You're awesome. Um, and if you don't like my work, I understand. <laughs> um, it's uh, people who I worked with were like, oh, you should be more like this, or you should draw more like that, or you should be this person. And then people outside figured I was going into a job and I was like a superstar and everybody's like, here comes Axer, he's amazing. And it's like, no, it's never been that way. At my current job, it's not that way either. But the difference is now with the studio that I work with, is we all treat each other with respect and we love each other's work. They genuinely like what I do. I genuinely like what they do. And we want to make this thing great. And we love the things we're making for it. So if I had known it had been that way, I would have gone in studio. I know I'm talking a lot, just a little bit more, I promise. <laughs> um, um, I, if I had known a studio could be that positive, then I would have I would have gone in and that's why I try to tell people every studio and every team within a studio can be very different. And if you have a bad experience, it may not be the experience you could ever replicate again somewhere else for better or for worse. So keep your options open. If you have an opportunity that you feel fits for you, because that opportunity fit really well for me. And now I have more free time than I've ever had. Um, I'm happier work-wise than I've been most of my life. I'm working on a project that I enjoy working on. I'm able to express myself within it. I'm respected within a team, um, you know, and uh, I'm able to have agency in that situation. So going back into the studio was really originally a compromise that then I found out later was what I should have done two years earlier. Uh, well, the, uh... oh, I remembered one thing that I actually wanted to follow that up with. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people, I don't know if I want to say disparage, um, but you'll hear some skepticism about studio work, not being as stable as you might think that it would be because, you know, they might hire on for a project and then the project ends or they want to change a lot of things and then they just wash a bunch of people out. What's your... What, what's your thoughts on 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 that? Is there merit to that, or is there ways to avoid that? There's merit to it. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's documented uh, publicly that that happens. Um, I know a couple people who refuse to work in the industry again, specifically because they're like, I don't want to have the axe over my head ever again. I've been laid off twice. Once because I worked for a crap studio. Once because I worked for a studio who didn't appreciate the fact that I literally directed their entire game and they were paying me like a crap salary and then they let me go after promising me better stuff i mean it happens the question is do you find it worth the risk and are you looking into the company and their history right um and also the circumstances of layoffs so layoffs happen for a lot of reasons sometimes it's scumbags being scummy sometimes it's a company being a bad company, a lot of times it's mergers. And when mergers happen, a lot of the people who are let go are considered redundant, which is a really cruel way to say there's two people doing the same job and we only need one. Um, in a perfect world, the people running the company would go, let's keep both and protect our employees who have put in time and effort into the thing that we have created. In the real world, people who run companies want to make profit and they have investors who want to make more profit. And in order to keep that cycle running, they have to increase profits they cannot stabilize. So a lot of the times mergers end up in layoffs, which sucks. And there's no happy ending to this conversation for that. It's going to happen again. It will happen at many different companies. You can have protection against that. 
I think, say, a company that's smaller and more stable and is run from the top by people who fight against that, say, like Supergiant is one that everybody talks about, is less likely to have that happen. But circumstances happen, too. Um, you can talk about like Tim Schafer over at Double Fine when his company was having rough waters and then he's like, I've got to make the choice. Do I let people go? Do I pay them out of pocket? Where is this money going to come from? Because things aren't selling the way that we thought they would. And that's the downside of trying not to be the company that's going to have a merger and lay people off. But realistically, there's a lot of positions on companies and projects where for at least the duration of a project, you can be protected. And you will probably be part of that project through its dura uh, duration into shipping and maybe beyond. But a lot of times, unfortunately, you have to feel that out. There is no guarantee for anything. Just like there's no guarantee that tomorrow you'll have freelance work. Um, however, I think getting laid off from a company hurts a lot more just because you're like, I think I have stability. But I personally, and, and, and mind you, this is just opinion. Um, I think it's worth the risk if you feel comfortable enough with it and it's something you really want because a lot of times people within the industry will protect each other that they when they enjoy working and sometimes those opportunities give way to even better opportunities so yeah it's a real threat it's a threat at anything you could work at Domino's and be laid off you know what i mean you could work at, in the industry and be laid off you could be doing a contract for a company as a freelancer and be laid off you know you could be working for Wizards of the Coast on something and they're like, yeah, we don't need this project anymore. You're laid off. Um, people have an idea of companies they think that do more layoffs than others. And there are companies that have done more layoffs than others. But I think the threat is kind of universally there in a lot of cases. But I don't think it's as crazy as people exaggerate it to be. Because if it was, a lot of these companies couldn't function anymore because no one would work there. <laughs> But um, that aside, if you have a very anti-corporate mental state, don't work for a corporation. <laughs> um, I'm kind of in the middle, uh, you know, cards on the table. I, I believe in both sides of it. I don't think corporations have to be inherently evil all the way through. I think that once you're talking about investors and CEOs and stuff, there's going to be some decisions that are money made and not people made. And that's terrible. But I don't think that everybody who works for a big company is terrible and I don't think they're all out to get you. And I, I know a lot of industry veterans that have worked at the same place for like 17 years and they're not even the best workers. They'll be like, yeah, I'm not even the best worker here. They're like, I, but I've got a good job and I put, you know, I love it. And I really, you know, so you're going to, you're going to hear all sides of it. And it sounds like I'm saying nothing, but I actually am saying that it's really going to come down to what you personally look for and the risk you want to take on, because there are risks on all sides of that. Um, just try not to feed yourself biased misinformation to support the answer you want to hear. Find the real facts or situations that you can, that you at least think you can believe are reliable sources and make an informed decision that you feel suits what you want to hear. Um, it's because a lot of times I just run into people who are like, yeah, big corporations are evil, so I don't have to work for them. And I'm like, do you want to? And you're mad that it's not working out? Or do you genuinely, are you taking a stand? Like, what is it? And it, it falls in a lot of different places. Um, you know, don't cut yourself out of a dream you have because you're afraid that you might not achieve that dream. 
but at the same time, know what your dream is because maybe it isn't studio. I've known people who worked at studios for like 10 years and then they quit and they were like, now I'm living the dream. I didn't want to do this and I realized it. Kind of like how I realized I didn't want to do comics when I was, you know, starting up. Well, um, I think we're coming close to the end. Moose, you got anything that you have for follow-ups? Sure. Um, this was a BlizzCon weekend, and I believe it was your first year as an unemployee of Blizzard during mm-hmm. BlizzCon. Yeah. So, as an uh, unemployee? <laughs> Did you say unemployee? And unemployee. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, listen. I mumbled my entire life. I'm trying my best on this podcast. Um, the uh, so last year when you were at BlizzCon, it was as a as a guest, but this year it was as an employee. Uh, 2019, yeah, because we didn't we didn't have a BlizzCon in 2020. This is that's correct. Yeah, yes, because of COVID. That's a th- that's a thing. Um, how was it uh, experiencing BlizzCon as an employee as opposed to as a uh, a guest? Uh, I was like not experiencing BlizzCon because it was online and um, it was different. And so I was honestly just experiencing it like anyone else would sitting at home. Um, In 2019, I realized I'd never gone to BlizzCon before. I realized what BlizzCon was Um, from an outsider. I originally was like, well, BlizzCon is like they announced some stuff for games and they have some contests. But being there, I realized, no, it's supposed to be a celebration of people who have lived their lives with these games, love these games, and want to meet like-minded people and celebrate that. I saw more World of Warcraft tattoos on people in one day than I will ever see for the rest of my life. These people had stories and, and joyful moments that they achieved in games and around games and adjacent to people adjacent to those games. Um, and, and it was an amazing experience just speaking with people um, at BlizzCon as part of it, you know, at a Hearthstone table. And I was just like, I was honestly overwhelmed by it because I've spent a lot of my life away from other people. And I was just like, this is an amazing experience that I underestimated. Um, so I think that for probably everybody, this BlizzCon didn't feel like any other BlizzCon because you don't have everybody in the same place. You're kind of through the filter of, you know, the worst way to experience something I think is through Twitter comments and chat rooms full of people who aren't invested in the thing that they're watching. Resident sleeper. Yeah. So you've got a lot of people, you know, I was watching a panel for BlizzCon and I'm like, Oh, this is cool information. I love like his history of these games, you know, and people are like cringe, lame, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but this person would never go to BlizzCon because at BlizzCon, I didn't meet anybody doing that. I met like one person who was like, yeah, BlizzCon sucks. And I'm like, but you bought a ticket. So what stand are you making? Um, and uh, But I saw people who were just like impassioned. And I'm like, man, I don't have enough passion. This is great. But, you know, so I, I think I think I feel like I didn't really experience my first BlizzCon <laughs> working with the uh, because originally if BlizzCon was on, I would have been in a blue shirt, you know, helping people learn how to play Hearthstone for the first time or introducing you know the next expansion and talking with people or whatever um i was supposed to have a panel at this blizzcon but it got canceled because we had to we had to fit everything in so uh, i was going to do like a live art demo and uh, we'll probably just do that some other time so it was was really like a cool event but not the same Uh, did you see any of your material being introduced in the uh 
any of the stuff that we're talking about uh, on Friday? Uh, for Hearthstone, I'm I'm kind of everybody on the art team is kind of attached to everything that comes out for it. So um, I was pretty heavily attached to the new uh, mercenaries that they had announced. Um, I can't really talk about that specifically, but there's stuff that I did of prominence involved with that. Um, I did stuff of prominence with the next set. And, uh, and so, yeah, like the, the weird thing about working with Hearthstone internally is like, if you work externally, you, you get card art done and people are like, whoa, the card art you work internally and you work on stuff where people are like, whoa, that's cool. And then you work on all the other stuff. Nobody really thinks about you needing to do like the background where the cards go in the shop or this wooden fixture for this UI we're introducing or these buttons and also the like superstar work. So I think everybody's everybody's on the art team always a big part of every announcement that's made for Hearthstone. One thing that we didn't get to in this interview is uh, a personal project that you're working on. I would like to have you on again. If you're into it, man, I would like to preemptively invite you back. Oh, hell yeah. Have a whole podcast just to talk about this fucking awesome game that you're making, man. <laughs> Um, as well as some, some other things. I mean, there's been like half a dozen things that we've talked about today that we could have dug a lot deeper on. Uh, so that would be, that would be awesome if you were into it. Um, in the meantime, uh, where would you like people to go and find you and your projects? Um, well, first of all, uh, you just name the time and I'll be back whenever you want. I'm having a blast hanging out with everybody. This is great. Um, the, the number one, place that I post art is on Twitter. So it's just twitter.com slash J-A-X-E-R. Um, and then uh, beyond that, I've got an art station under the same name. And then beyond that, I've got a DA. And if you're really daring, I've got a Fur Affinity page. But there's weird stuff in there. So discretion is advised. Um, but I, honestly, I post I post the most often and the most like work in progress stuff and talk about very different projects on Twitter because I just like being able to throw stuff up and and have it be there whether it gets a response or not. Um, I keep my Twitter pretty art centric, so if you hate Twitter, understand I'm not like going on weird political rants or anything. I I literally just I save that for elsewhere. Um, it's just art. It's art and promotion of streams and and people's art that I think is awesome. That's awesome, man. One more question for you. Outside of career and art, what's something that's happening in the world that you're excited about? Uh, <laughs> how political do you want to get? <laughs> it's it's your question, to, man. Really. Uh, I think that um, it's a bittersweet thing, but I'm always excited when civil rights movements are moving forward and it feels like they might have any kind of traction. I think that the world's been in a state where people have been scared to just be who they are. And it's nice to see at least a, a forum that might be receptive to the idea that all types of people are still people. Um, and that excites me greatly because um, it, 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 there's a lot of cruelty in the world. I don't see why we need to unnecessarily add more to it. So um, it, it's a little, it's a little heavy, I suppose. But that's that's really where my mind goes when we're outside of art and career. No, amen to that, man. Um, thank you again so much for your time. This has been 
fucking incredible. So much great information. Um, thank you. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Cool, man. Well, with that, I'm going to wave goodbye and I'm going to hit.